I'm Justin Lassick, and you're listening to 70s Big Radio. This particular podcast is different because Mike isn't here, and I'm not even really here. I'm actually uh, at home, not with you. But uh, this podcast, I interview my friend, Dr. Rob Andrade. He's a physical therapist in the Army, and he has a unique combination of uh, training knowledge regarding coaching and performing uh, movements and lifting and CrossFit, along with physical therapy and the hard science that goes behind that. So he is kind of a, he straddles those two worlds. He's more of a, he's more on the physical therapy side, but he is able to look at the coaching side of things as well. And uh, so he usually uh, is thought provoking for, for me at least. And uh, we're usually uh, dicking around a lot and we're slightly more serious in this interview because we had to be on task and we're not actually uh, intoxicated uh, too much. But um, without further ado, I'll uh, get right to the interview. Enjoy. All right, I'm here today with Rob Andrade, a doctor of I'm not a doctor. physical harassment. <laughs> and uh, so I wanted to bring, I wanted to talk to you because uh, whenever I <coughs> chat with you, we always have uh, completely meaningless conversations. So I was hoping that a recording device would put some sort of. Uh, uh, you know, direction into our conversation. It adds a certain stress. It certainly does. <laughs> I'm sweating right now. So what, I, do you ever stop sweating? No. Okay. It's a, it's a thing I have. So we're going to talk about... <laughs> uh, so Rob and our wives are here, so we're having to uh, entertain ourselves and ignore them. And uh, But one thing that uh, I think that you're, you're good at is... Um, I can't think of a single thing. No, it's but you uh, you do a good job of making me think about training because there's you're you've got a, the side of uh, physical therapy behind you, and I've kind of got like some coaching experience. And then uh, we were just talking about the tension between that relationship that it seems that one can't defer to the other in some cases, or they don't play nice sometimes. Um, and they shouldn't play nice, really. They they should argue with each other. They're, once in a while, they should uh, one should overbear the other, and that way you get whatever you need done at that time. You know, accomplished. Kit, how do you toe that line yourself? Because you you coach a little bit. Well, I'm a. I mean, I I'm utterly biased towards what is going to be ultimately the athlete's goal. So even if that goal is to just be healthy and you know, get off the can when they're 80. Or if that goal is to, to be a really go fast guy for the next three years, uh, try not to, not to judge that. And based on whatever goals they have, then I will, I will try to meet them. And that, uh, like you mentioned, that tension that exists between the coach and the clinician and me, uh, it's not going to be what my ego thinks needs to happen. It's going to be what the athlete needs to happen. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that's normally the way that we look at things, frequently. Um, your, your experience with physical therapy comes from um, the Army, right? Yeah, so, so, so I'm, an Army, I'm an Army physical therapist, um, but I'm not necessarily overburdened with having always wanted to be an Army physical therapist because I had many other jobs in the past and I kind of fell ass backwards into a very lucky situation and a very difficult school to get into and um, I really came very close to, to being a nurse 
at some point and uh, found the Army's doctorate in physical therapy and applied to it kind of on a whim, uh, which is probably going to make a lot of my colleagues that got into that program or probably the, the ones who didn't get into that program really mad. But it worked out. I got in and uh, turns out that it's a great job for me, but I, I wasn't stuck in the preconceived notion of what it should be or what I was going to do over the years. So. Um, sometimes when people hear military medicine, they have a negative connotation of that. But in the time that I've known people that have gone through this particular physical therapy school, that's on a that's kind of the opposite with the Army's physical therapist program. So you, one of the things you told me before is uh, the sheer amount of research that that program can gets through because they have so many willing or unwilling participants, right? Don't, don't you have a lot of opportunity for research? Well, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, unsavory as it sounds, you know, slavery gets shit done. Um, you know, the pyramids didn't get built by guys who were getting paid, uh, and that's kind of what the Army's physical therapy program looks like from an evidence standpoint. You've got professors who are really good in their topics, and they want to they want to do research on those topics, and every year that we go in, uh, a new cohort of kind of hardworking guys who are, you know, men and women who want to want to pass the program have to contribute to that research every year. And so, uh, you know, I joke about slavery, but the fact of the matter is, you get to kind of choose what you're doing, but they make you do research uh, at a pretty high level and also learn to appreciate the research, which hopefully turns you into a better clinician moving forward because you don't just accept the status quo and you don't sit around and say, well, I learned that in school, so it must be right. Um, you also have a little bit different background because in, in CrossFit, which we are both somewhat aligned with CrossFit, um, in CrossFit you see a lot of guys that were prior military, and you are also prior military given that you are in the military again, but it, there was a there's a big break of the service and you were was it ten years in EOD? Yeah, I was a Navy EOD tech for about ten years. So you have that experience, <coughs> and then is that a? I think I've asked you this before, but is is Navy EOD? They're concerned with uh, special operations. They they support that. They're a echelon. little more a little more aligned with it than the Army's the Army and Air Force and Marine Corps EOD. I, I wouldn't say they're mainly concerned with it, but they're definitely more aligned with the go-fast world than the other services EOD uh, troops are. And in the the sh in the I've met I've known you for what it's almost been a year now, and uh, you have a more direct way of approaching things, and that's that's one thing that I think will come out in uh, in this type of interview, and especially. Uh, your opinions on training or physical therapy will come out because you, even your stories of client interaction or even interacting with your peers um, is more of a direct thing. And that seems to be built from your time on a team because you always reference back to those stories. Um, do you find that you can accomplish more by being blunt and direct or is it, is that ever hamper a relationship with a client when you're trying to get them to do something or what? Well, in a coaching relationship, uh well, the fact of the matter is, outside of my military job, I only deal with people who I feel I can fit well with. And if I don't fit well with them, I just don't deal with them. I don't, I don't need it. Um, I'm, 
being paid to do something on a daily basis and all day I need to make sure I'm being professional and going a certain direction. And the fact of the matter is uh, I will try to help people outside of that realm. I'll try to coach people outside of that realm. And if they're not suitable, if they're not suitable to work with, and it's not them, but if it's not a suitable interaction, I just don't work with them for long. And so does it hamper it? Uh, yeah, yeah, because a lot of times if, if the personalities don't match, I just don't, I just don't work with somebody. And that's not, that's not something that I feel like I, I want to spend my off time doing is, is uh, grinding away on someone who doesn't believe anything I'm saying. So, yeah, if it's not working out, I just, don't, I just don't try to coach them or do that. I'll move on to somebody else who I think I can actually help. Um, <clears throat> so speaking of not working with people and, and working with people, I think that you're, I think the bluntness is a good thing because sometimes I will be talking to you about something in the past and you'll just kind of, you're not being, like not being rude or anything, but you'll disagree with me and then talk about why. And I'm able to do that with other people. And I was just talking to my wife about it the other day that she, uh, she doesn't like that sometimes that I, because I attack arguments, not people, and you're the same way. So that, that's why I think a, a relationship with you in this professional sense would be productive. So let's get into coaching. And so what's, this is, I know these are kind of like general questions, so it's hard to, hard to answer these well. But what are, what's something regarding movement and leading to injuries that coaches could instantly start doing something better if, if, if that makes sense. Is what's, what can they do in their current day-to-day -day stuff to be better about, I guess, not injuring people? Well, I keep in mind that, that, that this is what, what I'm going to suggest next is really difficult to, to implement. And I'm not saying for a second that I am great at it. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've, I've stopped coaching a larger class recently because I found I couldn't control the environment well enough for my taste. So like I said, take this with a grain of salt, but uh, we tend to force movements. We tend to say, this is the movement I wanna see, and this is the movement that the athletes are gonna do, and uh, so this is what they're gonna do today. And so we put these movements together, we have very few modifications of those movements, and then no matter what's happening with the athlete, we will go up and try to make a correction. If they mess it up, we'll still try to make a correction. And at some point, and all of us have done it, we just sort of give up and go away, and then we turn at a 45-degree angle to this person, and then we no longer watch them because we can't take it anymore, but we don't stop them from doing what they're doing. And uh, a great example would be a front squat, and that's probably one of the most abused things. And I'm not saying that we should work on fixing just the front squat, but I'm just using this as a little bit of an example. So we have somebody who grabs a bar, starts front squatting, leans forward, you know, their spine bends forward. So they're like internally rotating the shoulder, they're kind of like flexing in the upper back, the T-spine, and then they're, they're just kind of generally rounded pooping dog. Yeah. Look, okay. Yeah, they're just basically a hunchback in Notre Dame doing squats. And so they'll go up and down, the weight will be heavy enough to where they can't control it, or maybe they couldn't even control it without the weight, <clears throat> knees going in, all this bad stuff, and yet we just insist upon doing more and more weight in this position or more and more reps in this position. And 
or not making a change and just continuing yeah, with the exactly. workout. Exactly. Yeah. It's just it's just too much work. There's too many people out there, and that and that happens, and that's the problem with with you know running a business is you have to actually make money from that business to eat, and you can't just stop all progress. So I, I totally get that it's difficult, but if you have somebody who is doing say front squat with horrible form, and you know they're all bent forward, they're all doing this work. We're not terribly worried about them hurting themselves that day. We should be worried about them hurting themselves down the line, though, because it will happen. It just might not happen under our watch, but even though we, we, we share some responsibility for it. But we stare at it, we let it go, and we don't insist that this person do the right thing. We try to correct it, and then when we can't correct it, we just sort of give up. Well, the way that, the way that uh, especially sports trained, physical therapists, because there are different ways to look at the world, and one of the paradigms is sports physical therapy, and I think any physical therapist worth their salt should have a little bit of a sports background, and this is what guys who, say, work with the Olympic teams and that are going to have a good, solid background in working with professional teams and that. Um, they look at the body and they say, what sort of exercises can we do to make sure that we're actually uh, preparing the athlete for the movement? So looking at it from that standpoint, there are building blocks that go into doing that exercise. So again, sticking with the front squat, a strong spine is part of that, some flexible shoulders are part of that, uh, maybe even more importantly, motor control in the hip. And I have a feeling we're gonna talk about motor control quite a bit. It's a, a completely under-discussed topic. We love to talk about mobility but motor control is a big issue. But you know, motor, lacking motor control on the hips, um, let's even let's not even go further down the chain because I think that's probably enough. Um, if an athlete is missing one or many of those things, we could benefit from taking that athlete, and that athlete can benefit uh, from us looking at each of those components and starting to work on those components in a less challenging environment. It's going to be less likely to create injuries and worse yet it's or better yet it's going to be it's going to be less likely to create bad motor patterns that are going to remain it's like if i taught somebody to throw you know to to throw a ball but every time they threw the ball the first thing they did was turn their head and look at the ball first and then throw the ball anytime they go to throw that ball they're not going to release it fast they're going to train themselves to look right at that ball first before they throw it and if they do it a thousand times, they're going to have to do it one or two thousand times to unlearn that bad habit. Or it'd be like a sprinter. It'd be like a sprinter coming off the blocks. And if the sprinter said, boom, the gun goes and the sprinter goes, get some and then runs. <laughs> every time they go to run off the blocks, they're going to be in that habit of saying, get some. This, and they're going to lose every race. This sprinter is Duke Nukem then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right. Well, so the... That, that's how I function, and I, I'm not in an environment where I'm coaching a class. Uh, well, when I do seminars, I do, but I'm not coaching a large class on a regular basis right now. So the problem for, let's say, more CrossFit or group training environment is logistically, what are they supposed to do? And obviously, that gets into more of they're going to have to have a way of training people up to be that they're ready in the class, or they're going to be able to put more attention on a given person. So... That's a whole logistical nightmare that I don't even want to 
I don't know that I care to get well, into Well, I mean, right there's, now. there's some good examples out there, guys who do that, though. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we, we all... I mean, when I, when I coached CrossFit, that's how I did it. I had some people that I knew that I could get an eye on them every now and then, but they were going to be okay. And then I, and the people that really needed help, I would kind of put my, most of my attention on them. But that's not always going to work. What have you seen work? Well, you have, you have other gyms like, uh, like Matt and Cherie Chan's gym in Denver where they limit the numbers of people who go in there. Into the a given part. class? Okay. Into a given class, and that they're, they're kind of hardcore about limiting their, their clientele. I might be misunderstanding how they're running stuff nowadays, but, <coughs> but, but their gym doesn't take new athletes, or at least it didn't when I was in Denver, it didn't take new athletes uh, unless there was space for new athletes. Overall clients, you mean? That was my understanding, yeah. And there were a couple of gyms I know that also work like that. They're yeah. just one that I've had a few people tell me about do that sort of thing. They don't just they don't just take a bunch of people and try to fill up the classes as much as they can. They you know, they, they limit stuff. And if you do that, you can you can keep an eye on athletes and make sure that make sure that you've got uh, you know, you build a business model based on I can live off of this many athletes in my gym and this is how many can come and, you know, I'm good enough at teaching it or whatever, whatever they have to tell themselves so that people will continue to come. So you got different levels of it. The first is the coach-client ratio. The second is being objective and saying, what can our coaches as on average handle or what can this particular coach on average handle yeah. and going from it from there. So that's, or the, or yeah. the piece that's missing nowadays, which is, which is foundations. Yeah. I mean, you mean like a foundations-type class that leads into the group stuff? Yeah, because we're all... We're all too we're all too good nowadays to do a foundations class leading into leading into going to a new CrossFit gym, and I, I you know I see it at the gym where we're at uh, where people say, well I know my stuff, and they're like people just say, oh, okay, but I mean they, it, well, I don't think it'd be a bad thing to test people on these movements and to say, yeah. hey you you can't you can't join our cult unless you have a certain way of a certain way of thinking, a certain way of being, and if you don't have your movements down, you don't get to, you know, you don't get to, to come join our club and do our thing. And I, I, you know, that sounds like, you know, if I won the lottery and I started a CrossFit gym and I wasn't afraid of running a place that only had four clients, I'd run it just like that and be super hardcore about it. But I realize that, the, that there's business to be done in the real world and ultimately CrossFit is, is a business and a lifestyle, and I'm not sure which order that's in. Right, but, but then I mean, but then the coach at that given facility, their knowledge base is going to dictate. Is well, the different coaches in different facilities are going to their their ability is going to be different. So mm -hmm. that baseline at one gym or one place or one area is going to be different than a baseline at another one. But. Um, All right, we had a little we had a little break, uh, so I could sort my life out. Um, one thing that uh, we've been we always come back to whenever we're discussing shit like this is that we come back to motor control, and uh, it, it and you always talk about how it's an important, an overlooked aspect regarding coaches because I mean most people probably don't even know what that term even means. So let's start at the very basic, like Crayola style, like what is motor control? 
It's being able to go through a movement accurately. The end. Well, we'll see you guys next week. And <laughs> if only this was updated weekly. Perfect. Um, so being able to, um, to execute movement. So you've got different... Um, would, you, would you get into talking about motor programs and stuff to, in your to help explain that? Or is that getting to be more specific to certain movements and stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think I think motor control is just a big idea that someone is is able to actually move around and have control of their limbs, have control of their whatever whatever segment they're trying to move. Because that that sounds kind of like kinesthetic awareness, like the, from just or maybe these terms are the are synonymous. That's an, that's an aspect of it. Um, you know, it's not only being aware of where it's at, but it's also being able to to move through that thing. So you can know where something is and not be able to move through it well. Okay, so kinesthetic awareness is no, uh, moving uh, your body through space and having an awareness through space. And so yeah. you're just to fill people in that are not, don't have physiology background or whatever. And then so uh, you're saying that that's, that's not always enough because doing that in a, what would you say, like in an efficient manner or having like proper activation of of well, everything structures. has to fire in its way. I'll give you, I'll give you a great example. So I, I was a, a, an incredibly uncoordinated teenager. I grew very, very fast. They thought I was going to be like a little midget person. I had size 11 feet and was like 5'3". They're just like, there's something like wrong with this child. His brother grew at a regular rate. Well, once I got like really big, really fast, all ability to, to go through any kind of athletic motion just went away. But I always knew where I was. I was like, oh, look at that. I'm uh, about to throw that baseball in a completely fucked up manner. Or, oh, look, I'm falling down in front of this like, girl I want to talk to. Uh, that happened all the time. I knew it was happening. I knew when it was going on. But it didn't stop me from not being able to do it. It's kind of like when somebody squats and brings their knees in. They know their knees are going in, but some people are just not able to control that sort of thing. And that's, that can be a, a far more complicated thing, but... Uh, but yeah, it's knowing where you are in space and also being able to do what it is you're trying to tell your, tell your segments to do. Where does uh, neuromuscular efficiency fit in with this? That sounds like a big word to me. Mm. Um, I mean, I, you're talking about like motor units firing. I mean, isn't that, is that not part of what we're talking about here? Well, it would definitely be part of it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it would, certainly, it would certainly be part of it. If you train yourself to go through... <laughs> If you train yourself to go through certain movements with, with an efficient in an efficient manner, like the like not jabbing yourself in the eye with a fork every time you pick it up, but actually lifting it like calmly and cleanly to your mouth. Or in the same thing when you try to pick it something heavy up in the Yeah, you don't. I'd rather eat my food than, than stick it in my brain. So but either way you want to be able to control that stuff and that's where I think where you're talking about with the efficiency. Because well, I see I mean when somebody's never squatted before and they're very herky jerky and then, of course, they're learning the skill and in, in, uh, in exercise physiology, they they actually kind of teach, and this is probably like a fuzzy, arbitrary thing, but they always teach that the first uh, month or six weeks worth of time is just uh, a, a nervous system adaptation to Absolutely. to lifting, as opposed to like changing the muscle properties and everything. So where it is on that continuum of time, I don't know, but uh, but that that plays into this and so you're like there's bridging the gap between just like learning how to squat and then just having like the ability to properly uh 
activate all the musculature that should be activated. So what are some limitations that would prevent someone from being activated? <laughs> so, yeah, as in what can cause that? I mean, like, people, people learn how to squat in CrossFit or in strength, mm -hmm. by strength coaches and stuff, but they're dysfunctional in certain parts of the movement or they're not having um, the, they're not having, I always use this term and it, and I don't know how you'll, what you'll think about it, but like distribution of the force across the appropriate musculature with Ter the mechanics. Term. It sounds like, it sounds like <laughs> lots of, lots of words with little content. No, okay. so repeat yourself. I wasn't listening. So, I lost focus. <laughs> so like if I'm talking about like someone actually rotating at the hip, like that changes what muscles are kind of, I, I, I don't, I don't know if I like the term emphasize in the movement, but like you obviously think of like someone knees coming in. We're getting a lot of medial stress on the knee. So like, you know, you're kind of pinpointing that, <coughs> that quadricep function to the middle part of the knee or the medial aspect. And so if you're actually rotating at the hip and you're getting the knees out, then you're kind of distributing what is actually moving the weight more across the entire thigh instead of just one little pinpointed area. Yeah, so that's what I mean by like distribution of force. I yeah, guess. just remember the, the like when when a segment moves, like you're talking about <clears throat> squatting with an externally rotated hip, something precedes external rotation of the hip. So in order to externally rotate the hip, you have to fire you have to fire the smaller muscles in the glutes, like men mead, to make that happen. Mm -hmm. So uh, if those muscles aren't firing correctly and then say the correct order I'm not in love with that term like that but if they're not if they're not firing when and how they should you won't externally rotate the hip and then you will you will have this unequal distribution of forces that you're talking about um, which is kind of which is heavily implicated in in sort of pain in the front of the knees that a lot of people think is many other things but usually it's just dysfunction based on muscles not firing right or lack of flexibility or a few other things but um, but you gotta think before emotion happens, before movement happens, joints don't move without muscles. And so if a muscle fires uh, in the right way, the joint will move in the right way. So I, I, I think of it as, as either the muscle is not firing correctly or it's not strong enough to make the action happen. And if it's not strong enough to make the action happen, especially since you brought up external rotation of the, of the hips, um, or you know we use the term valgus or valgus collapse. Basically, it's the knees coming in. Right. So if the knees were coming in during the squat, one of a couple things is happening. One, either the muscles that that do keep those knees out aren't firing right. Um, or Which is two, probably our most common. It is probably the it's probably the most common problem that that happens every single day in every single gym. But the real problem is you can make somebody squat all day long, and if all they're doing is squatting, they will probably not fix the issue. So the idea of squat more and you'll make your squat better is not always accurate. It's like telling someone, man, hey, you know what? We need to toughen you up, man. Just go pick a fight. So would that happen at any kind of weight or just if somebody goes too heavy? Or could that be you know, a problem at any point? Well, yeah, I mean, all of it. So, but the, I think too much weight is an idea that is a good thing to think about. Just keep in mind, because for some of us, 300 pounds or 400 pounds or 500 pounds is where too much weight starts happening. 
But for others, an air squat is already too much weight. And so they might lose the ability to fire that. So for those of us who don't have our knees come in until we put a bunch of weight on the bar, we're seeing, we're seeing that line where we stop firing those muscles correctly based on overloading ourselves. Whereas many of the other athletes are already overloading themselves just getting out of bed in the morning. And for those guys who can't squat correctly with no weight on them, they don't need a bar on their back. That's not going to fix things. So how do you fix it? A few different ways. Um, like encourage the person to fire it. One of, the, one of my favorite things as far as getting someone to keep their knees out when they're squatting is to put a band around their knees. And you can use the big fat bands in the gym and you know just tie them up like when we do all the mobility stuff put them around your knees take a couple steps back and squat while keeping your knees not just out but in control because that kind of wavery knee thing that goes on sometimes is an example of lack of motor control so the band around the knees or even just one of those thinner bands tied around your knees doing squats and keeping your knees out when you're doing it is probably a good thing to do that's, so that's actually, probably my favorite fix. Are you actually strengthening or are you learning what it feels like to keep those muscles activated? You would start with you would start with teaching them how to activate, which would be a lighter weight. Um, and then you would go on to maybe strengthening them. But strength frequently might not be the problem. It might really be uh, muscle activation. Like a person might not be activating the muscle at all and and this is a horrible trick of this. If you're not, you're, you're, these glute muscles that keep your knees out, if they don't fire right, the opposite muscles that pull the knees in compensate for it at the bottom of the squat. And when we see this is when guys will get to the bottom of their squat and they'll only move their knees a couple inches, but they'll just pin them in. Like they'll move them inwards like two inches and lock their adductors, which is the muscles on the inside of their thighs. And so if you squat and you wake up the next day and your thighs, your inner thighs are sore, you're that dude. Your, your glutes, you just your explained, quads, you and just your just explained me in high school. What's that? <laughs> you just explained me in high school when I came back for every summer. Yeah. Um, I don't, for me personally coaching, I don't have an issue too much with getting people properly externally rotated but what I do see more so is people having an issue being uh, at a proper torso angle in like a high bar squat because and I feel like it's a motor control issue given like for instance her and I'm pointing to uh, my wife for people who aren't sitting with us does she have a name no she doesn't okay. she's wife and uh, she is everything that is good Aww. <laughs> <laughs> But it's just wife. That thank you. So sweet and not. At no, the same it's, time. <laughs> it's Allie. And uh, so she has the, uh, we could say, mobility for the sake of our, the parlance of our times. She has the ability to be um, vertical in a squat. And, but then when she does it unloaded, she's kind of leaned over more because I kind of brought her up on, on low bar and I don't have her low bar anymore. And then, uh, so I was having a front squat um, as a primary method of squatting, and now we're getting back into back squatting. Her back squat is much better, her high bar back squat is much better than it was prior to this, to this hip injury. But it's still, uh, she's, she gets more leaned over than I would like to see. And it seems like she has 
the um, body dimensions and the mobility to get in the proper position, but she it's difficult for her to do so if she's flat shoes and no weight. Mm-hmm. So I see that as a motor control issue. So mm-hmm. what would what was if you see someone that's like this and you're dealing with this, like how are you approaching that situation? Well, there's a diagram uh, that's floated around for years of front squat versus high bar back squat versus low bar back squat. That's a kind of pencil drawing. Yeah. You guys Do- can Dr. find Kilg- that if you really, really want. Dr. Kilgore drew it originally. Yeah. So, yeah, everybody, everybody called it by a different name. Yeah. So, um, but that gives a really good example of the types of body positions that go on. But the fact of the matter is if your torso is completely upright, you have to have the weight, the center of gravity right. over over the approximately the balls or heels of the feet. I know balls of the feet is kind of what we say. So to do that, you have to have your knees forward mm-hmm. to a great extent. And so if you have anything that's limiting you from bringing your knees forward from from a from a flexibility or joint mobility standpoint, then that would be something worth looking at. Like uh, frequently, people like to say that ankle mobility is an issue. Put them on their back, bend their knee, and feel how far their foot bends, and you'll find that almost never is ankle mobility an issue. Most people have pretty mobile ankles because they have to get around the world. There's that occasional like funny person who walks around with uh, with no dorsiflexion and completely flat 90 degree feet. Um, but it's very, very rare. Most of us have, most of us have. Oh, stilt man. You must be talking stilt about stilt man. Well, yeah. stilt woman is the one I, in my dreams. <laughs> but um, she's very tall. <laughs> um, but uh, are you doing that again? So that's, that's actually uh, Justin's wife playing with my foot again. Um, so it's, it's much better on video. We'll, we'll have the video posted soon. But, uh, we're all not wearing clothes. What were we talking about? <laughs> we're talking about. Do uh, most people who do podcasts wear clothes? The only the bad looking ones. Okay, gotcha. Do bad looking people do podcasts? They have to. They can't <laughs> do. They can't do videos. <laughs> how, how would they do video? Um, why do we let those people live? Um, we were talking about something directly. An- you were getting into ankle mobility. So, so as far as, like, most people aren't lacking ankle mobility, so you might want to see what else they're lacking. Well, it's not going to be hip mobility because your hips are bent already, and uh, that's not really going to be the issue. Knee mobility, probably not the issue either, but what ends up happening is you get these kind of out-of-balance-looking athletes who, if they try to get their torso upright, they just can't control themselves for some reason. So if they're not lacking mobility or flexibility, they're probably lacking the ability to control themselves in the movement. So there's a couple ways of doing it. You can deload them, uh, as in have them grab a band that's hanging over their head and start playing around with that motion. I like to have people squat with just one of the, one of the legs of the squat rack or the pull-up bar kind of between their knees, grab it and bring their knees forward until they feel like they're going to fall off balance and kind of play with that motion a little bit. So they have to be able to lean their torso forward, bring their knees back, and then bring their knees forward and bring their torso up and play back and forth with it. 
uh, it's just like learning any other in athletic endeavor, like if we're going to teach somebody to throw a baseball, um, those are the two ways that I really take somebody and try to get them learning the squat, as long as they're strong enough. Um, but lots of times it's a matter of either they lack the motor control or, you know, let's just say coordination to get upright in that squat, or they lack the ability to fire the muscles that they need to to do it. And one of those two ways I think can help people do that. You get them upright, you deload it. You gotta remember that for some people, a body weight squat feels just as heavy as a 300 pound or a 400 pound squat feels to you. I've coached a, <clears throat> I've coached a girl that couldn't even do a body weight squat before. Um, she's actually in the Air Force. <laughs> And she literally, she just, if she went down into a squat position, she literally couldn't get up. So actually, I was out at Rip's gym, and he just had her leg press, and then we eventually got her squatting. But, mm -hmm. like, kind of, uh, I, I do this a little bit too, but uh, Rip's mentality sometimes is to, uh, I'm not speaking for him, but this is what I've seen him do in the past. He, yeah, you don't need to speak for him. Um, he... Uh, we'll kind of use the barbell to build these other, like yeah. work backwards, like the opposite direction mm -hmm. that you're talking about. And sometimes I do do that. I mean, I was having Allie do both of the things that you mentioned a second ago about trying to develop the motor control. Mm -hmm. And then we probably should still be doing that as at least part of warm up and stuff, but we kind of got away from that and started working on the, the front squat stuff. Um, so I'm sure her position has improved as far as the unweighted, unchewed position, but it's still probably can improve so I've did the unweighted stuff did the uh, holding on to something but uh, in the absence of uh, improvement how would you go about it then because that's that's like a long that's not an, a short-term you know thing to work on a gross a gross movement like a, a large-scale movement that has a lot of joints and trying to improve yeah, I'm, I'm gonna be a chicken shit here and not answer your question but uh, what I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you what I wouldn't do is I wouldn't say fuck it, and then just have them get into that movement anyway and hope it fixes itself. Yeah. That I would not do, and that is what I that is what I frequently see, is that people say, let's just get into it, and it'll, you know, you'll learn by doing. You know, for some people, maybe that works, but for most people, it ain't going to happen, and what you're going to do is you're going to reinforce that bad motor pattern yeah. over and over again, and you'll, you know, you'll quit CrossFit, or you'll quit this eventually, because it'll just, you'll get hurt. It'll, it'll start hurting you, and that's one of those things I, I hate to see because I, I love it. it. It's done great things for me, and I, I really enjoy I really enjoy the workouts and really enjoy the change that I saw over the years doing it, but the fact of the matter is if you got somebody who you just throw into the mix and say, screw it, just go ahead and do this and see what happens, you're probably going to hurt them. And like I said before, it might not be on your watch, but you're still partially responsible for it. So let's, I'm going to shift gears and kind of drive in an opposite direction from CrossFit for a few minutes. And let's just talk about fundamentals of, I was going to say barbell training, but it's kind of fundamentals of movement, of loaded movement, maybe. Um, we, okay, we could either, okay, what I'm thinking of, the way I used to teach it is I'd kind of start talking about, you know, so center of mass and what needs to happen in a barbell movement to maintain a good position. So in a, in most barbell movements, you're going to, the most efficient thing that's going to occur is the vertical bar path over the balance point of that person. 
And they're, so we got squatting and deadlifting and pressing as three easy examples. But the way I would go about teaching that now is starting from proper spinal position just from standing and then working and keep maintaining that through movement. Um, so I'm kind of getting into more of trying to teach that on the website. How would, is that where you would start? And then if so, like, well, how would you go about doing that? It's kind of, it's kind of hard to do on audio, I guess, but yeah, go ahead. I will say this about the spine. Um, I guess trunk position. I I don't like saying spinal position too much, but just overall trunk position. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, that's kind of the, well, I mean, that's the backbone of the trunk is the spine. So, uh, yeah, literally, I guess. Yeah. So the, I mean, the, the trunk is, if in order to have good trunk position, uh, you have to have the spine in a really strong static position. It is not, the trunk is not dynamic through these lifts for the most part. It is, it's dynamic from the hips, but for the most part, the trunk is pretty still. Um, ideally I should be, it should be. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the, the, the interesting thing is we like to think of these big muscles in our back, but that's not what we have. What we have is a bunch of little tiny ropes. Um, if you look at the skeleton, you've got all of these thingies that stick off of it. Just go ahead and call them that. So if you've got a thingy that sticks off a bone, it probably has a muscle connected to it. And the spine has the most thingies sticking off of it per square <laughs> inch of any part of the body. So you have, you know, you have a process that goes straight back. You have two processes that go left and right. And so each spinal segment has at least three thingies that stick off of it that have a muscle, multiple muscles attached to it. So none of those muscles goes any more than about six segments away. And most of them go two to four segments away. So these muscles are short, they're thin, and there's a ton of them. And those are the those are really the heart of the spinal muscles, and so they have to work together to do things. Now you have you have to be able to twist in your trunk and do all kinds of cool things and bend backwards and all these fine movements that are supposed to happen. But when you make a big movement, you lift lots of weight. Those muscles get the spine into position and hold it in position. And really, what also holds the spine in position is the way the bones are put together. So when you get your trunk in the proper position, it's kind of locked there, but it's, and it's stable. It's really stable in that position. I mean, it's incredible how stable it is, but the problem is as soon as you bend slightly, you start putting pressure on other parts of your spine. And so if you don't start with that, if you don't start with that stable position of the spine, like you're talking about, you are, you are putting stress on other parts of the spine that don't take stress well or at least don't take stress in that direction very well. Like the discs are a great example. So uh, they take axial loading, which is just straight up and down from head from head to butt. Basically, they take that loading really, really well. You can put a hell of a lot of weight on them, but they don't take shear or twist as well. And so if you get to a point where you are bending over and you don't have the spinal segments as tight as they should be, and you put a bunch of weight in your hands, what you do is you create shear on those discs and you are more likely to injure them. So from an injury standpoint, injury prevention standpoint, 
trunk position is of the utmost importance, not just to get the movement done, but to be able to do the movement when you're 40, 50, 60, and 70. And so I think when you talk about starting off with proper trunk position, might not be a bad idea to get athletes in the proper trunk position and work on just trunk position. And the moment they get out of trunk position, you get back into it and you retrain them on it over and over and over again. So they build that pattern from the beginning on. We just don't want to get weight over our head as fast as possible. And that's that's a, a good and a bad thing. So uh, the ways that I would teach someone th their proper trunk position is um, an appropriate amount. This is this is vague and arbitrary to say audibly, but uh, like getting their chest up a bit so they've got some thoracic extension so that that puts them in a neutral because a lot of people are, I guess, like kyphotic and kind of like mm -hmm. slunched and hunched and internally rotating their shoulder and basically look like um, a little weirdo. Uh, so I would want them to have their chest up. And then what I've been getting into lately is having a an active like contraction of the lower abs prior to starting any barbell movement. Well, first I've got like basic rules of bar of moving with barbells. Like the breath is always held and everything's tight before you move, regardless of what you're doing. So like getting it out of the rack and so on. We're moving past that. So like the positioning would be chest up and then lower abs contracted. Do you see? Uh, do you see that intentional contraction of the lower abs is something that'll help that help a an athlete or a lifter maintain that spinal position and that trunk position throughout the lift if they're actively contracting it throughout the lift? Definitely in the lumbar spine. I mean, the, the, you're talking about contracting the lower abs. Uh, you've got this sheet, this sheet of muscles that's basically like a girdle. And its only purpose is to, or at least the only thing that, can, that we can figure out is that it seems to stabilize the spine. It, it yanks on one side of the vertebrae and on the other side of the vertebrae and holds it a little more steady while you're doing things. So it, it not only do I think it will do that, but I think it's actually the only way for you to you know, actively stabilize the spine is to fire your trunk muscles like that. And you're saying lower abs, but yeah, you're, that's basically a correct assumption. You know, it's kind of like the, the, the Abercrombie and Finch male model muscle, the, like all the, <laughs> all the super, super skinny boys have like, Sticking out three inches, uh, only muscle in the body. I punched them right there. Gotcha. Yeah. So, but they do, but they do have a nice little like triangle muscle, like at the bottom of their. Their inguinal ligament. Their penis they're, lines. They're little, penis yeah, lines. Penis lines. <laughs> what? So they kind of point towards where the penis is. What? Why don't you call them bush lines? <laughs> you know those boys don't have bushes. <laughs> the little twinks don't have bushes, like inherently. That's you can't be a. Well, twink they have two fingers. They have two finger bushes. <laughs> the porn star bush. <laughs> they're like they're like male female Brazilian models. Um, yeah, yeah. I just went there. So, but we were they're penis showing. lines are cool. So yeah, inguinal ligament, penis lines. It's really the same thing. But yeah, that that muscle, that lower ab muscle right there. Um, we all have. It's just a matter of how prominent it is. Uh, that is one of the things that stabilizes your your spine in, in a rehab cir circumstance uh, from a from a really kind of weird ironic standpoint the first thing that happens when you do injure your back is those muscles shut down and don't fire right anymore so if you got guys who have recurrent back pain they're going to really benefit from from being encouraged to uh, 
to have those muscles fire on a regular basis. So I've been uh, doing some more reading or like rereading some St Stuart McGill stuff. I can, all right, I don't know what happened. I just blacked out. But uh, reading a little bit about Stuart McGill, and so he's got his uh, big three. Um, and are you, you know what I'm talking about when I say the big three exercises that he teaches? Left, not, right, not penis in the middle. This is probably a different Stuart McGill you're thinking of. Ah, sorry. <laughs> this, the one I'm talking about is a big mustache. Does that narrow it down? Same guy. <laughs> nope, that's him. <laughs> Some movies in the 70s. He has uh, some sort of curl-up, which I don't really uh, understand how to do properly. Um, but he's got this uh, bird dog. Mm -hmm. And he's, he, has, he likes to talk about a little plank where their elbows are on a Swiss ball and they're moving it around as opposed to doing any kind of other unnecessary Swiss ball stuff. And then what's the, what's the last one? Oh, side planks. Yeah. Which I've always used as... as spine rehab and I probably should have been teaching it from the beginning as spine prehab but it would digress. I, I like this I like the side plank especially. There's a, a nice randomized control trial of people split into groups and well, I guess that would of course randomized control trials would be like that. But they looked at different muscles that activated or different exercises that activated muscles in different oh, right, ways. Yeah. And transverse abdominis is specifically the the muscle that I'm thinking of. And the side plank was found to be the one that, that actually caused it to activate the most. And so if you're going to go ghetto and just be like, I'm going to throw something at it and not teach them how to activate it at all, but give them one exercise, the side plank will make it activate. They have no choice in, in the matter. And the cool thing about the side plank is you can, you can actually, you can actually uh, sort of scale the side plank too. So oh, yeah. for those who can't On do the side plank first well, they can go... They can go knees, they can go partial range, they can do it on a ball, they can do a few other things. Um, but yeah, they can go, especially starting knees and then going to full full extension of the, of the limbs. How would you load it for someone that can do it? Would you have them hold like a weight on top of the top side? Or? No, I'd probably get into into the side, the side plank with rotation. So you can rotate from the side plank down to the, the plank position and then into the side plank on the other side. And that's probably plenty enough challenge. I know you, you sound like you have a tendency towards a tendency towards wanting to take the exercise and load it. And, but for these Not always, but, but, well, like, no, but the ab exercise or the, the core exercise we talked about tonight, you've kind of, you've kind of gotten into like what um, other ones like the hip, the hip thrust. Uh, I wouldn't call that a, I would just be doing that for glutes. For glute development, not ah, so gotcha. much anything else. So you're not using that specifically for core stuff, gotcha. So, but okay, but in the case of like a side plank, like because Stuart McGill talks about when he has people do side planks, mm -hmm. it he would say that it's more beneficial to do it like ten seconds at a time instead of like just more time per rep yeah. because of the then you're just getting into the muscle property is being the thing that changes as opposed to uh, the function of the muscle, I guess. Yeah, if that there's makes like sense. some kind of there's some kind of deal with ischemia and the muscle basically lack of blood flow and that if you let the blood if you let the muscle off of its contraction once in a while more blood comes to it and it'll actually benefit more um, there's a nice study I was actually told yesterday that I need to find and read that I haven't read yet that refers to that so okay um, and that is McGill's McGill stuff so there's so there's that so like if I'm doing it 
and I, I'm not doubting that 10 second, <laughs> 10 second uh, side planks can be beneficial for me if I string them together, then whatever. And then I can do them up on my hand as well, like as opposed to just on my elbow. Um, but then I was just messing around and I had like a light dumbbell, like a, like a 15 pound dumbbell. And I just kind of put my other arm up as a T and the people can't see me, but I was yeah. doing this. And it, I found that that was, I had, could feel that more as far as side plank, the transverse abdominals, that kind of shit, as opposed to just setting it right here, which I didn't really feel yeah. as much. So it was just like loading it differently. And so I didn't know if well, I, I was as just. As long as you look at control first and then, and then that, I don't see any problem with adding weight to anything. But if you, if you have the control and the endurance, then by all means add some challenge to it. But if you don't yet have the control or the endurance, then hold off and wait until you have the control and the endurance. I don't know how interesting this will be to uh, the listener, so I should probably talk about it. Um, <laughs> um, but I've been... Are we worried about listeners here? Uh, I would have been much more exciting if we, I knew we had listeners. Oh, well, damn it. Um, I've been... Based on reading uh, some of McGill's stuff, when, when people have uh, jacked up backs, which is a scientific term, um, not jacked backs, mm -hmm. which is a, which is a, uh, never mind. Uh, I just imagine like a gay porn film, like, oh, like jacked backs. <laughs> I don't know why that's trying to make a joke about everybody's face in the room. Everyone is horrified. <laughs> um, all right, so he's talking about um, messed up backs and hamstring and glute function and like overall this might be going in the wrong direction but he you know spinal mobility is not important hip mobility is to prevent spinal or to improve these things but he also talks about um the the person's ability to use their glutes compared to their hamstrings and so it made me start thinking like are is kind of glute deficiency more of a thing and that's why i was talking to you earlier about hip thrusts which are the lying hip thrust with a bar across the pelvis mm -hmm. um, or bridges or whatever the fuck people well, want to call deficiency is, is a major pop a major like problem in the white female population um, <laughs> that I, I think should be fixed okay <laughs> uh, please part. we're trying to I'm not sure it. how it affects I'm not sure how it affects your back but there's nothing as sad as a glute let's, deficiency. let's start a nice bucket challenge for glute deficiency <laughs> <laughs> what would it what would it Eradicate glute I've been challenged by Justin Lasik <laughs> to do the white girl glute deficiency ice bucket challenge. And next, I would like to challenge Callista Flockhart, Miley, Kate Moss. Miley Cyrus. Miley Cyrus. Miley Cyrus. Yeah. What would they do? Would they start squatting? Would they start squatting an ice bucket? Well... Probably it would be the best thing for them as long as they had good motor control. You know what? You know what? Does not approve of this. You know what? What animals do you think have the best glutes? Humans. No. Have you seen a uh, mountain goat? They have very large glutes. Are those their glutes or their hamstrings? Oh, they're glutes. I don't know. I don't know. They're, they're rumps. Uh. Can we just Pretty call, sure it's glue. We just call it their hams. Yeah, I don't know. I'd be I'd be interested. They're to hawks. They're ho they're ham hawks. Uh, gorillas have interesting glutes. Okay. Horses. I don't know. That's 
My veterinary is pretty weak, but I think humans got the best glutes. Alright, well, I'm not saying. Not from what, a sexual standpoint. I'm not saying <laughs> sexual. What, anim, what animals sexually have the most appealing glutes? Correct answer, though. Alright, so. Uh, well, we know you like mountain goats. <laughs> My father was a Rocky. <laughs> Does it bother you that your father used to sleep with mountain goats? <laughs> nah. <laughs> you like that? He's got a lot of. Where that came from? All right. So, did, is glute deficiency something that should be trained in isolation to support like the the bigger movements? Not not so much talking about um, like external rotation and more of the motor con stuff that can help with the motor control but is like when I look at someone I can I look at how they walk and I look at how people move and stuff and I also look at muscular distribution so you have some people that are very quad dominant it's very popular in CrossFit or it's, it's prevalent in CrossFit more so because there's so much like into the knees type squatting and movements where and there's not a lot of posterior chain emphasis and then not you can more, tell at least <laughs> And you can tell some gyms have more of a uh, emphasis on certain movements than others, but but like doing burpees and front squats and cleans and snatches and stuff results in a lot of anterior chain being built up. So those people have deficient hamstrings. Hamstrings are like something I focused on for a long time in training populations because it's typically in a neglected area. And then so, but I've also seen some. Uh, lifters or athletes that do have some decent hamstring development and then it almost it could be because their hamstrings have grown and then it just makes their glutes look smaller in comparison or that their glutes just aren't as developed and I and I it's made me start thinking about after reading this McGill stuff if the glutes need more emphasis or if like squatting is enough assuming they have the motor control to squat properly so I mean it does it wish will it require more glute emphasis or how would you even know if you did require more well if you're doing what you need to do getting by and you don't have any dysfunction any pain uh, and you're meeting your goals as an athlete then no need to add anything else into the mix but if you're not meeting those goals then you got to find a way to do it and I don't think that there's any problem with training muscles in isolation to fix problems. I, I like multi-joint movements for most training, but I think that uh, training muscles in isolation to fix issues is not a problem. We're, we're, very, we're very opposed to that in many, in many of these communities, like just in the regular strength and conditioning community, in the CrossFit community. Like we, we think of training muscles in isolation as you know, it's like doing a curl or something ultimately lame like that. But the it's fact, good, bro. I mean, well, I don't know. You gotta go to the beach sometime. It was beach season this year. It was, yeah. <laughs> it is every year. It's almost <laughs> over. I'm about to stop working after the year. <laughs> no, no, but it, it I don't starts think up a, in April. <laughs> I don't think there's a problem with the, yeah. Just like every year, I'm just a hundred pounds heavier. <laughs> Uh, I don't think there's a problem with training muscles to an extent in isolation uh, or at least uh, focusing on a muscle. And if you have a problem, and I'm not sure I understand completely glute deficient because, I mean, you have different muscles in your glute that do different things. But let's just say, for example, you're, you know, any of your glute muscles are weak. 
train them in isolation, get them strong enough or get them firing and then get into the other movements. Throw them back in the movement and see if mm-hmm. anything changed. Once they train that, because the problem in the body is the weak will get weaker and the strong will compensate. If your glutes aren't firing yeah. right, your adductors will fire to do it. And I'm saying this for anybody out there who, who is listening or cares to, if your inner thighs are sore after you nobody's squat, in, nobody's listening. you are a problem. I'm going to pretend that people are listening. Um, I'm going to even pretend that, that Petra is listening. No, but if, you're, if your inner thighs are sore when you're squatting. Huh? My inner thighs aren't sore after I squat. No, because you're squatting right. But uh, I still want to pretend you're listening. Though. See, I, just was te- I was testing to see if you're So listening. if you have external rotation in, in that's me. Mm-hmm. That's me playing footsie. Which up. is unfortunate. <laughs> if, if someone is externally rotating... Um, an effect of that might be that the adductors are stretched. Wouldn't wouldn't you want tension on the adductors to have more tension about the hip in a squat? Not necessarily that they're like a prime move, because I mean they, some of them will function as a hip extensor, mm-hmm. but wouldn't you want some tension on them to increase that total tension on the hip? I would guess so. But you're just saying you're just kind of saying like if that's like your primary sore point, then it's kind of indicative that you are kind of having that. The knees come in a couple inches, and well, because you're using it as a prime, not just, using it not just as a prime mover, but you're kind of locking your knees in with okay. your adductors. It means that means that probably, probably your your glute men and meat are not firing right. Okay. If your adductors are taking the brunt of that, but if you're really in there squatting, like, I mean, do your adductors get sore when you when you deadlift? Me personally, mm-hmm. no. Yeah, because you're. Because they don't really, they don't work that much when you do. Yeah, I mean the, if I'm gonna be a pain in the ass, devil's advocate, you're not having as much external rotation in a deadlift compared to a squat. But you are having an equal amount of balance, which means no more external rotation than internal rotation. Like you're you're implying, it sounds like that you that you're forcibly externally rotating your your hips. Um, when really that's not necessarily not necessarily the case. I mean, you're you're come on the squat. Yeah, you're preventing them from internally. You're preventing them from internally rotating more than you are actively externally rotating them. I would argue that, and I welcome any criticism. And I won't listen to it or read it, but, but I welcome <laughs> it. Um, the way that I, that I would coach the squat now, if I was especially with a high bar squat, because the I would coach low bar squat like this too, but the way that I'd want to get someone to external rotate, which is a fancy way to say getting the knees out, is like kind of more of uh, my old school term for that, I guess, given my coaching tree that it came from. But um, I start with the trunk stability stuff, and then then I would have kind of an active, almost like abduction and slight, like literal external rotation before the squat even begins, just like a little bit of. Yeah, but they haven't started the movement yet, so yeah. no, there's no knee flexion. There's just like a little just bit tension. of, yeah, just te- I, I like tension on the system prior to a movement, and the more tension I can have around the joint, then the more, the more control I would have, or the more control the person would have. So, especially with Allie, given her issues uh, with um, the motor control stuff and then the prior hip injury stuff, that's something I've put an emphasis on with her, of having all that tension on prior to the movement, and then that's kind of activated as she starts and so that's kind of I see that as ideal because the more tension you have the more control and the more 
force production is essentially what I want as like a coach, but I also want it to be done properly so that there's not dysfunction in the future to hurt her or result in loading things improperly. So I don't know what my point is. I just wanted to tell you that story, I guess. I like that. I mean, I'm happy that you're, you're looking out for your wife. So is that how, I mean, I've started doing that as well and I can tell the difference in, because I've, I, in the past, I probably had a little bit of slamming in and using the adductors mm-hmm. as primary movers. But now, I mean, I just squatted heavier than I have in a while recently, no adductor soreness at all. And uh, so I feel that I'm controlling better than I have in the past. And that if one of the day comes, if I'm able to train to get back up to more heavier squatting, then uh, I feel that I could do it a lot more efficient than I have in the past based on doing it in that way that is just rambled about. So when I well, like, go in another route, when I coach the bench press, there's probably it's probably a little bit different but i want external rotation in the shoulder as well during the press and the bench press because that'll the for instance the lat is an internal rotator so the more the more external rotation i have actively then the, i can get a little tension with the lat powerlifting guys they're always like the lats make the bench go up it doesn't make it go up because it's obviously a shoulder extensor right so but that's kind of what i what I see is like my analysis is that if I'm actually rotated, I'm tightening up the internal rotators. So the end of the antagonist is being tight and tense. And so the more tension I have about the shoulder and the bench press or the hip and the squat, the more control I have. And ideally that'd be maximizing like a motor control. So do you have any kind of like comment or response to any of the shit that I've just rambled about the past couple minutes? I would agree that yes, the lab is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So is that, I mean, do you is that do you? It's do you disagree with anything I just said? Because normally when I disagree, you'll just tell me you disagree, but you just don't have anything to add. No, or... I, don't, I mean I don't I don't disagree with any of it. Um, at least none of it sticks out to me as anything I would disagree with. Um, I think getting back to that original point of creating tension before you do a movement is a good idea. Because any time, even if you take it down to the, and if you take it down to the smallest or one of the smallest units in the muscle, um, it's basically the muscle cell. Um, you have to have some tension on that thing in order to get the most out of the lift. And if you maintain tension on it the whole time, then you're able to actually lift out of it easier. It's kind of like a, kind of like a a true Romanian deadlift as in grabbing it off the rack kind of deal. That is the, that is the right, that is starting from the the hang position. That is basically the old school RDL, right? Yeah. You're you're starting from the hang. You can, anybody strong can do a higher RDL than they can do a, a regular old, regular old deadlift. That's my understanding, right? What are you saying? You're lowering it on an RDL, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, most people can do more on an RDL than they can grabbing it off the ground. Well, I mean, it depends on how you're allowing them to do the RDL because I, I wouldn't have the same mechanics. It sounds like you're saying an RDL is just going from the hang position down to the floor and back up. Yeah, that, and then that's how I... But I would define an RDL as di- different mechanics to emphasize more okay. of a... So mine's... The way that I would teach the RDL, 
I, I guess it depends on how someone's doing it. But I have when, when I have people do it, they're pushing their butt back, feet are flat. Mm -hmm. They're not having a lot of knee flexion, but the knees are unlocked because when the knees are straight, it tends to shift that emphasis down yeah. pro, uh, distal in the hamstring. And I want proximal hamstring uh, mm -hmm. stretch and contraction. So the somebody that is doing it the way that I would coach it should should be uh, significantly lower in weight than what they are deadlifting. Okay, gotcha. Like if I was going to work up and do it, I might – like when I did it the other day, I was using only around 90K, mm -hmm. but I would move up to like 100, 110K. But if anybody is doing like 315 or something pounds for an RDL and they're like 180 pound guy, I'd be like, well, something's not right here. You probably have a lot of knee flexion, probably a bunch of fucking weird back gotcha. stuff because more knee flexion is more just like a deadlift. But your point is more so that you're loading, you've got tension on a muscle prior to its contraction. That was exactly. your point you were getting yeah. at. Okay. So maybe a better example would be if you just put a bar on somebody's chest and have them grab it and try to bench press it. Yeah. You probably wouldn't be able to get... Or like the move. bottom position of a squat. Exactly. Okay. You wouldn't be able to get out of the bottom position without having gotten to the bottom position first. Yeah. Yeah, cause, because you've got tension. It's like a rubber band stretching and coming back. Yeah. You've got some, you've got some of the... Some of the myosin heads in the muscle cell that are still holding on. So basically the rubber bands in the muscle cell are actually still connected. So you don't have to reconnect them and then get them pulled. They're actually yeah. on stretch and then going back. Which is another reason why anybody listening should control the way down and then go fast up instead of falling into it like yeah. their favorite weightlifter might. Yeah. Um, for, for many reasons, not, 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 the, not, not the least of which is you're probably going to hurt yourself if you keep like slamming down to the yeah. bottom of a movement. But you're also stronger. What do you mean you're you're stronger if you, if you lower something down oh, right. with a little bit of tension. You you are physically going to be able to get that weight up easier the next time. So let's assume someone made it this far and they've actually been interested in all this. What is very unlikely? What is a what is a take home topic that someone can that you can teach someone to do right now to to implement? So. As a physical therapist, someone probably would want to ask you a bunch of questions, but you can, maybe not you, <laughs> they, but if someone, they, they're like, oh, you're a physical therapist? I've got this pain, and they would start talking, like various people, I, I, most of my injuries, I mean, sorry, most of my questions I get on the website are injury questions, mm -hmm. and I'm not entirely qualified to always mess with that, and it's kind of like, well, this is what I would have you do in the absence of a physical therapist. Yeah. So what can people... Do you have any general, um, like general advice for people as, as far as um, how they can deal with their with their tightness or their issues or their, their motor control? Where, where do you want to take this? Like, give someone something they can put in their toolbox, I guess, and move forward. Well, I I was I was uh, forced to learn and memorize this diagram when I went through PT school, and I hated it when I did it because it was just another of. Uh, many thousands of things that I had to memorize. Um, but now I actually have a copy of this thing in my office. It's a little thing that looks like, looks like steps drawn. And it is where you start and where you end in all rehabilitative circumstances. Um, so I went from hating this and not wanting to deal with it to every day wanting to make sure that every time I have a patient come in, and every time I get confused, I can look right at the wall behind my computer screen and remember the order in which we do things. And so if I was, 
going to give anybody uh, any ideas on how to deal, especially with injuries? I know you're talking maybe more in athletic stuff, but at least when people are dealing with, with issues that are bothering them, the first thing you have to do is get your pain under control. That's step number one, no matter what's going on. Whether that's icing up, taking some Motrin, whatever you got to do to get your pain under control to an extent, um, you got to do that. The next thing is that you make sure that you've got motion there. So if you've got to do mobility drills, um, if you've got to stretch, whatever you got to do to make whatever joint that is move correctly, you got to do it. So once you've got pain under control, you go for motion. Once you've got motion under control, then you start looking at motor control. Being able to move through something without any twitchy, weird patterns. Um, if you're moving through them with twitchy, weird patterns, you gotta make sure that you're, that you're taking a step back and being able to move smoothly and correctly, basically moving, moving with a certain amount of accuracy. And only then do you ever bother on getting back and dealing with strength and, uh, you know, strength and all these other full activities. Loading it and trying to load exactly. it in any kind of way that you were before it was yeah, that so, way. So my take home is that control, make sure in an injury state, you control your pain first. You end up getting motion back in whatever segment it is. So if it hurts to move it, make sure you're moving it in as gentle way as possible to, to avoid hurting it any worse. And then at that point, you got to start working motor control, work through the pattern before you add weight to the pattern. If you, if you use that as a foundation, um, moving forward, you'll probably be far likely to have a healthy athletic endeavor than you would if you just started throwing weight on things early. I like it. It's, it's giving someone a uh, kind of a really easy, well, not easy to implement all the time, but it's giving someone an algorithm that instead of just them messing with something and then jumping back into activity, it's giving them a step-by-step -step that'll hopefully prevent that thing from being worse and hopefully preventing it from occurring in the future. Would you, where would you put, um, I, th I think in terms of, yeah, I got it. The alleys like wrap this up basically. Fair enough. Where would you put, you could, cause you want to, then would you start once you get, once you get to your last step in your steps here, mm -hmm. is that when you start looking at, the mechanics that caused the thing to begin with, if it was a chronic issue. No, man, you got to look at you got to look at the mechanics before you even get into. Or is the that the motor control part? Yeah, that's the that's the okay. motor control piece. So the thing that caused it. Things like that. Okay. Yeah. So it's basically pain. That's the palliative treatment of what's going on, like the 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 problem at the time. That's your rest, ice, whatever you got to do. We'll do one more time for me. The second one is uh, motion. Motion, and so that's. That's part of part of that initial rehab process. Yeah, getting the thing to move again. Then the motor control. Mm -hmm. So that's so basically you're going palliative treatment, like addressing what's going on right now, and then going back after you get that done. Then you're going back and addressing the the thing that caused it to begin with. And oftentimes in lifting or in CrossFit, that's going to be some sort of like little could be minutia, but it could be like a gross fault in a in a in a movement and stuff. So. That's gonna if you're if you're listening. That's either gonna be try and get it situated by hopefully seeing some video on yourself or having a coach diagnose you if your coach did it you to begin with, which has happened to me before. Like having injuries as a result of, of coaching and 
uh, hopefully you, you can figure out what the problem is and what it what you can do to fix it. But things go wrong now. This is a better algorithm as opposed to just kind of blindly going about it. Well, I appreciate uh, taking the time to sit down. We'll definitely have to do this again because I enjoyed it, and we can get into more shenanigans later. We were real doctor serious tonight. Yeah, it was uh, very, very unfun. I, I lost I lost all the fun like any other room tonight. Sorry. <laughs> but I'm uh, not really sorry. But just are you sorry? You're not sorry. I'm sorry. Now I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. I wasn't sorry. I wasn't sorry before. Okay. Well, uh, do you guys have anything to add? I think the last stepfather, I believe, had stuff is uh, vanilla ice cream with whipped cream. Ooh. Oh. Then is that what's about to happen? Then we definitely got to wrap it up. Yeah. Why don't you tell us to wrap this? Try. All right. Well, we gotta. We gotta go.